In this episode, we're talking about the hypothetical glass ceiling in business and how a biologist has been able to break the stereotype that environmental professionals can't rise into the executive team of an infrastructure company. Hi, and welcome. Buckle up for a new episode of Beyond the Green Line, the only podcast hooking you up for a virtual coffee date with some of the leading change makers, industry experts, and everyday activists in environmental and agricultural sciences. So pop in your headphones, go for a walk, and get ready for inspiration, ideas, insights, and real-life stories beyond the green line we balance along. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Beyond the Green Line. I'm your host, Chanel gleeson Willey. Our guest today is Christy McLaughlin, Infrastructure Director at New South Wales at Hatch and graduate of the Institute of Company Directors. Christy is also very accomplished in jiu-jitsu, a passion that she shares with her two beautiful children. Hi, Christy. It's been a really long time since we last spoke. I'm really looking forward to catching up with you. Yeah, me too, Chanel. Thank you for the invite. It's definitely great to have you here. So I, I know you're originally from Canada where you completed your Bachelor of Science Honours in Environmental Biology and a Master of Science in Plant Biology and Microbiology. Mm-hmm. And I believe you you did all this whilst also doing a lot of hiking in the backcountry around Alberta. Can you tell me about that time and your interest in the area of biology? Absolutely. I, I started into biology through high school. I found high school quite I've always been really academic and really into reading and books and learning, but biology for some reason just felt really quite magical to me. It was no matter what I learned, there was another question and it just opened up so much and everything just was connected to everything else. And so I just, I just loved, I don't know why I just loved biology. It just, it just really, it made me try. It made me really engaged at high school. So it was a pretty natural progression into my bachelor. I went to University of Guelph in Ontario. And then moving from there, I went to Edmonton, Alberta, just to do a little bit of research on the breakdown of contamination in soil. So how plants could be used to to more naturally remediate contaminants in soil. So I originally started in on my PhD. And as I started going through my PhD, I wasn't quite sure how I could practically apply what I was doing. So I, I... I managed to get the master's and, and then move on to, you know, to, to the next stage of my career. So I find, I found the, the research itself incredibly rewarding. But then at one point I was just, how am I going to actually use the research that I'm doing? And I couldn't quite see that immediate application. So I just took some, took a break to try to figure it all out. Was that because at the time bioremediation wasn't really being done? Anyway, yeah, it was a little bit of that, but it was also, I think, you know, once you do the research in science, it takes quite a bit. I don't think people really understand the regulatory practices required to actually get something to market. And I, and I think for me, it was just, I was a little bit of, I was a bit impatient and it was, you know, I'm, I'm doing this now, so I want to use it now. So it was just a really bit of, it was a bit of a break to see, you know, how am I going to actually apply some of the, some of the cool things that I'm learning? Yeah, sure. 
So after this, you landed in Australia uh, in 2004, I think, yeah. uh, with no plan to stay long-term. What happened next? I, th- I think a lot of expats will share that same sort of story, which is <laughs> you land you land in a foreign country with no plans and then suddenly you've got two kids and a, and a partner, you know, and a, and a house and a mortgage <laughs> and a job. So... Yeah, we. I came over with my partner at the time to Australia and because he was going to be doing his PhD. I'd written my LSATs back in Canada, which is the law school admission test. And it was a little bit of a, do I go back to school for another four years or uni for another four years? Or do I do I try a little bit in sort of the, the work environment? So I started at Australian Museum and WWF, just sort of playing in the in in environment and and biology, biological sort of projects, and then and then I would just lucked into really. I just had a conversation with somebody at a contaminated contaminated land specialist consulting company, and I, I just got started into that. So it was it was not really that planned, but in the end, it it really that's where I started my whole career. Yeah. And you, you were there for about five years. What was it like working for a contaminated land company? It was great. I, I enjoyed it. And because it was quite a small one, it was a boutique firm. It doesn't actually exist anymore. It was, it was really great because of the size of it. Well, first of all, I met my husband there. So that's, you know, that's, that's a, that's a plus. Even better. <laughs> but, <laughs> but the funny story with that is actually, I met him to take his job and then he went off to Canada for a year. So it was, it's just this weird, this weird, I guess, little things that are, you know, the the coincidences that happen across your life. But so I took his job while he went off to, we weren't anything at the time. And then I learned so much in that small contaminated land firm because you had to do all the admin, you had to do all the project management, you had to do all the client interface. You know, it was just the entire project life cycle was up to you. And as somebody who'd never done any of that, it was it was a pretty quick, you know, trial by fire. But I I just loved it. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess when you put into that situation, it's definitely sink or swim. Obviously you swam and five years later, you then moved on to a promotion in, well, with John Hollander's regional environment manager. And this is where our paths crossed. Yes. That was another, I mean, every, every move in my career that I made was completely unplanned and unexpected. That was, you know, I, I saw, I, I wasn't even looking for a job and I saw an ad somewhere. I don't even know where it came up, but I saw an ad and I didn't even really know what John Holland was. It was, um, yeah, it was 2009. So I'd been here for five years, but not really touching the construction space. And when I went into John Holland, my eyes just went, whoa, like there's just the the intelligence and the the sophistication and the size of the projects that we were doing at John Holland just blew my mind. And I just, I just lapped it all up. I loved it. What is it? particularly that you love about infrastructure and building stuff? Because I know I love it. Yeah. <laughs> can, you, can, you, can you articulate it? I think, it, and I think I said it a little bit around biology. It's the complexity of all the things that have to come together and the fact that it does and the fact that it does really well and the, the teamwork and the collaboration and the connectivity and the interface and just it all has to work together. And that just... I, I ne- I'm never ceased to be amazed at the the skill of the people that work in this industry. So whilst in CLM, you had worked in business development as well as, as you said, an awful lot of other areas of business. 
I mean, I can start to see a small shift away from the hands-on fieldwork side of science or of biology. How did your time at John Holland and Axionia, I hope I said that right, <laughs> confirm that you, for you, that you wanted to pursue corporate strategy and leadership? It's a really good question because I, again, just, I feel like I fell into it. It just, there was a, a promotion that I got passed over for. And at the time I was told that they needed somebody in that role that was going to cause an evolution and not a revolution. So I, I, I'd made, <laughs> I think I'd made a little bit of a reputation for myself. And so as a result of that, I, I was lucky enough to get, I guess, offered a role to help in an integration that we were doing within, within John Holland. It was just, they, they needed somebody that they knew that they could rely on to, to pull a whole lot of information together. And so I went onto the team to bring in, I think it was five or six contracts that we'd acquired from McMahon contracting and bringing it into the John Holland systems. And so my role was really to look at all the different environmental profiles of all the different projects that we brought on during the M&A process and do a bit of due diligence and picking that apart. And I think it, that that was probably my first step into this whole corporate integration transformation type work that I probably did for another eight, you know, seven or eight years. So you moved on from John Holland at that point after having your second child. Is that correct? There was a little bit of a blip in there so that I went to Actiona for about six months. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. But then I went back to John Holland again. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely a good company. Yeah. You moved on to work at Sydney Airport, uh, which was a very exciting role for you and one where you broke through that glass ceiling into the role of general manager. Can you tell me about that role and what you loved about it? I did love that role. That was just everything about that role, aside from the commute, I loved. It was just pre-COVID while I was there as sort of, I still still remember being in the boardroom one one January, one day in January, we'd just come back from holidays and we started talking about this little virus and whether we should think about it as a SARS or whether, you know, and it just, you know, from there, everybody knows what happened from there. But, but yeah, I, that role, I just, I absolutely loved it. We were, we were planning on delivering uh, a big transformation to the way that the buildings on airport were set up the master plan the master plan for the airport was was looking at some pretty big growth strategies and and it was really working with the design teams and the operation teams to how are we going to deliver that kind of a capital program and pulling that capital program together under you know in, in an environment that um, you know we really needed to make you know, construction delivery strategy work. And, you know, we were, we were pretty close to pushing the button to make it all happen. And then we had to reduce the spend really quickly and let go of most of the construction team. Yeah, I guess really poor timing, but the actual process would have been really, really rewarding. Is the airport likely to, I guess, pull those out of the archives in future years, do you think? Well, I, th- I think they're going to, they're going to have to come back and, and start to do that, that capital spend in the, in the COVID period, they've switched ownership. So I'm not really sure what the new owners would be looking for, but I, I, I would assume that, you know, from a, from a point of view of passenger forecasts, we're probably going to be seeing, you know, in, international travel. I think domestic travel is getting back to close to what it was before, but international travel probably might take a little bit of a delay, but get back on track. So, you know, we're, we've got this new airport being built out in Western Sydney and um, Sydney Airport's going to, you know, probably want to keep up its current passenger load and, and grow as well. So we'll definitely need to see some capital investment in our Sydney airport too. So... 
And with this role, did you see yourself as breaking through that glass ceiling or is that, was it more of a evolution? That's a really good question. I think, I think from a personal point of view, I absolutely, like there's something about the title general manager that, you know, when you're in construction, I can't think of a general manager that I knew that was a female or a scientist, let alone a, a biologist. So, you know, when I, when I looked at those two aspects, I think it certainly, it certainly made me feel that way. However, because it was in a company that was quite diverse and had multiple different backgrounds, it was a bit less obvious of a glass ceiling in the airport than it was in a construction company. So, at the time, I probably thought it was a personal achievement rather than a broader glass ceiling uh, you know, promotion. Okay. And you now work for Hatch, a multinational engineering company with um, a very entrepreneurial spirit. What's it like to be a leader there? Because you've well and truly stepped into that leadership position now. Yeah, it's the company that I'm working for now. It's it's really interesting in terms of their, that entrepreneurs with a technical soul. It's it's real and it's true. And I am one of the only non-engineers in my team and and that's okay. I'm also one of the only females in my team and that's okay too. And it's it really is an uh, an area where there the the desire is there to really accept diversity and understand what it can bring. From a leadership point of view, Sydney's or New South Wales, I guess, is a, is in a very huge state of transition for Hatch, which is where I really enjoy being. We've just brought three business, three different businesses in under Hatch. So we've acquired an urban solutions and urban planning group, Roberts Day, rail systems and and rolling stock engineering group under LTK, and then a civil and structural team with Lindsay Dynan. And those are three very different groups of people. And so my role is bringing those three groups of people together under in under one sort of collective. And yeah, the the challenge and the reward is is huge. So I'm interested to hear a bit more now about your other passion. <laughs> so after after leaving John Holland for the, the second time, you had your beautiful daughter and you took up jujitsu. It looks like a really fun sport from what I've seen with some great camaraderie, but I know almost nothing about it. So what what is the sport like and how does it all work? Sure. I knew nothing about it either when I started. So my son, who's 14, he started when he was 11 and he at 11, you know, boys are getting bigger. They're sort of rough and tumble. And we did quite a bit of just, you know, rolling around wrestling. And I remember one day I was on FaceTime with my mom and we were, we were rumbling a bit and he, and he did what's called a double leg takedown and I fell and I hit my head and I went, Oh God, that can't be good. And so I said, okay, I'm just going to take a couple classes just to learn how to, you know, how to fall and how to roll and how to move in these kinds of situations. And the second I stepped on the mat, it was just a big, we have a really strong ladies group in, in the gym that we're in. And it was just, uh, remember in the change room, one of the ladies there was new and she was like, oh, yay, somebody's new with me. And she gave me a cuddle. And then we went onto the mats and, you know, right away, it was just, it, it just felt, it felt right. And, you know, to your question about what is jujitsu, it, it is a martial art, but it's it's based, especially our group, there's sort of sports jujitsu, but there's also, our group is really focused on self-defense and reacting, I guess, to, to people coming at you, not, not being aggressive. So one of the things I like to say, you know, somebody's like, careful, she'll beat you up. And one of my, you know, 
cliche responses is no, but you probably can't beat me up. You know, so, so yeah, it's, there's a camaraderie there to answer your point on that. There's absolute camaraderie there because you are in physical danger with your partner when you're training with them and you need to have that trust and that, that I guess that there is an intimacy because the, you know, mount is one of the strong positions and you can just go, you know, your mind can tell you what that is, right? There's an intimacy in the positions and you have to completely trust your partner. So there's a lot of, a lot of just really quick and accelerated connection that happens on the mats. And you've obviously got a pretty high pressure um, position at work. And other than trying not to crack your head open when you're wrestling with your son, is there, uh, is it a form of pressure release or is it a form of relaxation for you or a bit of both? It started, yeah, I can still remember the feeling of getting on the mats at first. And I loved it because I was, I was bad at something and I needed to just forget about everything to just listen. And I needed to learn and I need to take it all in. And nobody expected me to know anything and no one expected me. So the, you know, every, every aspect of reliance on me to, to take anything forward was gone. So, you know, being a mom, being high pressure roles, all of that, it just kind of melted away. And I had an hour in every class to just focus on that one thing. So at first it was more of a relaxation, but the more into it I get, the more it becomes a release. I would say it's, it's less relaxing because now I'm putting pressure on myself to grow and, and learn. And, you know, with just over 20% of the way through the belt progression, so I've still got a long way to go, you know, black belts over 10 years usually to get. So, you know, there's a long way to go, but there's a whole lot of people sort of coming up the ranks to that I, you know, need to help as well. Mm -hmm. So I did a bit of Googling about <laughs> jiu-jitsu and trusty Wikipedia. It told me that the philosophy of jiu-jitsu is to manipulate the opponent's force against you rather than confronting it with one's own force. Do the skills that you learn help you with your day-to-day -day job? I would, I would definitely say yes. I think, I think it's important and, and even growing, you know, growing through and maturing through my own roles, it's, it, it's not coming, it's not on the attack all the time. Sometimes it's better to actually just sit back and, and wait to see. Because sometimes you might go into a situation and think somebody's attacking you and they're totally not. And if you'd come in attacking, it would have been a completely different scenario. So yeah, there's, there's absolute parallels there for sure, for sure. And is the sport mostly focused on uh, physical combat as we've discussed? Um, or is there an element of philosophy like in karate? There's, there's certainly sort of respect rules, like at the beginning of every class, you bow to the, you know, before you get on the mats, when we line up, we line up in sort of, you know, progression type lineup. There's, you know, little, little bits of respect that you pay to your, to your professor, who's the black belt and the, or the coaches that are sort of leading the classes. So there's definitely, you know, that level of philosophy, but in terms of, you know, the, the karate kid where you sit there and you go through the sort of the katas and we don't, we don't do much of the kata stuff in jujitsu. Okay. So you were trained at uni in science-based thinking and obviously jujitsu is a different form of thinking again. So do you think these two ways of thinking have strongly influenced your leadership style over the years? Absolutely. I think what I've done 
in the last sort of 10 to 15 years is I've, I've strengthened some of my science-based thinking with some neuroleadership study and some organizational coaching. And I, I think, I think to take your, to take some of the stuff that you're learning through science, which is, you know, for, for, you know, every, you could have multiple variables that affect an outcome. And I think that's fundamental to understanding how to be a leader. So if you go in and you think there's only one reason for something to happen, you're going you're gonna to lose people along the way. And I think it's really important to recognize that none of us know the full the full answer or any of the full, you know, the full detail of things that have, that have, you know, that, that have come to pass for that one moment in time. So if, if, if we take this science-based thinking, some of the jujitsu thinking, which is you don't know everything and you got to learn. And, you know, one of my, one of my um, colleagues at Sydney airport and I would, you know, would just say every day is a school day and, and really taking that opportunity every day to learn new things and to build, just to build what's, what you've already learned along the way. So I'm going to bring you back now to um, the discussion about the glass ceiling. I guess a bit of a background as to why I'm interested in this and why I'm asking these questions is at one of the previous IECA conferences, we had a guest, or a keynote speaker who spoke about this perceived glass ceiling, which is very evident in a lot of organizations, but more to the point that environmental professionals don't often break that glass ceiling and that, you know, female scientists or environmental professionals, it's it's even rarer for that to occur. But I guess she was being, she was coming from the point of trying to be inspirational that she'd broken through that glass ceiling and that there's no reason why environmental professionals can't. So did you ever feel like you were actually struggling with that glass ceiling in the organizations that you worked for prior to Hatch? And why do you think there was a glass ceiling for you? The answer is I've absolutely felt that. Some of it, you know, and, and I actually went through this recently. It's, it's kind of lonely as a female and it's, and it's lonely as a female scientist because people want to talk through problems and it's, it's a constant, if, you, if you're somebody with a different thought process, no matter how respected you are in the room, you've still got to keep trying. You've still got to put a little bit of extra effort in to get your voice heard. And no, and I said, you know, as I say, no matter how open the room is to you and no matter how much they want to hear you, you have to put a little bit of extra effort in to get, to get that point across. And I had this conversation with somebody very recently, actually, and he said, but, but you're making change, Christy, and that's really important. And, and it absolutely is important, but the individual, so in this case, myself, it's, it takes a lot of energy and not everybody wants to invest that energy. So the system itself is there from his years and years and years and years of setup. So it's the people that want to come in and continue to, to, to blast against that and, and put in that energy to go through those barriers. And again, very rarely are they conscious barriers. And I have the utmost respect for my colleagues for wanting to, to break down their unconscious biases, but they're there. They're absolutely there. Mm. And is it that unconscious bias that is preventing, do you think, a lot of people from different professions, um, not just environmental professionals, or are we a bit unique in that along with safety and quality, I guess, we are the outsiders in engineering companies and that's maybe why it's a bit more stuck? Yeah. I think there's an important aspect to this, which is a curiosity that you need to have right from the get-go, which is understanding what everyone else around you values 
So if you can understand others, then you can sort of pitch your pitch your input according to an, an understanding of what it will do to their to their values. And so if you like for environment, for instance, if you say we need to implement these sort of sustainable criteria through the design, you need to understand what the design sort of process looks like and then say, well, if we come in at the end, we're going to have to go back and redesign everything. Or if we don't get in right at that beginning, and that's that's a conversation where somebody's, we don't need sustainability in at the beginning because we don't get the points, you know, decided till the end for say ISCA or Green Star. So, you know, those kinds of conversations, which is to be able to understand your colleagues and the other group's needs so that you can work in with those and understand where your needs align to theirs and where they conflict with theirs. And that's how you can manage. And do you have any advice for someone then from a a non-engineering background wanting to get into that executive leadership team position? I've got a lot of advice, but (laughs) you can't do it by yourself. That's something to, to to find your people. And, you know, making sure that that your people are there for you, that you've got, you need friends, you need mentors, you need sponsors. And I know a lot of people when they first get started and I was the same and I still am the same to some extent. If I see somebody that I really want to reach out to, to be a mentor, it takes a lot. It takes a lot of courage to pick up the phone because you think everybody's asking them to be mentors, but but very rarely does do people actually, you know, just pick up the phone and ask and everybody's super chuffed when they get asked. So, you know, I think, I think there's that element doing it. You just, you, if you do a good job, this is pretty basic, but if you, if you put energy in to do good work, then people want to take you with them. Mm. So your pathway up the corporate ladder saw you move laterally from environmental science into people management, uh, strategy and leadership. Do you see any other career progression pathways for non-engineering managers and infrastructure to climb that ladder? Yes. <laughs> you have to have somebody along the way that lets you. It's I don't mm-hmm. think it's something that the system is really open to to you know, say, oh, well, we're, we're going to choose five people this year to bring into non-traditional role or from non-traditional backgrounds to do these roles. You know, we've got a very, a very tried, tested sometimes true system, not often true, but, you know, we know we need to change it, but it's so gnarled and, and you know, everything's so, so mixed together that change is really, really difficult. So yeah, it's, it, there's not, there's not a distinct path. It's really, like I, I've said, I think three times already in this chat is I didn't see it coming, but I took the opportunity when it, when it gave, when it gave itself, just as a, an aside story, I've done quite a bit of really intensive coaching sort of contracts with a coach that I have and they're six months at a time. And one of her biggest frustrations with me is that when she says, what do you want to be in the next five years? That that question puts me into hives. I just, I hate that question because I just don't know because I don't want to, you know, I didn't write birth plans for my kids because I didn't know what was going to happen and I didn't want to stay solid into one one path. So <laughs> yeah, so you're, t- you're taking opportunities as they come along. And I guess in a way, maybe something that you're doing in your career is putting, I guess, the executives in these infrastructure companies at ease to promote you over somebody with an engineering background. So there's obviously, I think, I don't know, there's maybe a bit of, it's not the norm, so therefore it's a bit scary for them to go with a a different approach. Yeah. 
Yeah, and and you're you're absolutely right. And I think one thing that that I have gotten a lot of feedback on is that I'm I've got a soft challenge approach. So well, I can be aggressive. I can bring a gun to a knife fight. Absolutely. But that's not what works. So it's, you know, when, and it's from a gender perspective, for instance, you know, when, when people say any kind of gender specific term in a meeting, they know I'm going to say something. And it's not a jump. It's not an attack. It's just, it's a gentle reminder that, hey, there's not just men in this room. You know, I did, I did an exercise for two days where I just did a ratio analysis of male to female in all of my meetings and 10 to 1. 10 to 2, 8 to 1, 7 to 1. And I brought it up at my next leadership meeting. And I said, do you guys have any idea the magnitude of this problem at senior levels in this organization? And none of them did. So it's this, I think it's, it's how you approach the fact that you're different. You need to mention your difference without drawing attention to your difference, but at the same time challenge barriers that are there because of your difference. And it's, it's an art and you learn it as you go. It's not something that you can sort of day one because you do come in swinging because you, you're kind of pissed off that you've got so many barriers in front of you, but they're there and it's not the person in front of you's fault that they're there. Yeah, definitely. That's, that's a really great point in that the people in the room with you, the, your, your male counterparts, it's, it's not necessarily their fault. You know, they're, they are there because of the system and therefore they may have all the best intentions in the world to work with you and, and with the, you know, the broader company to change this. But they can't move mountains in a day either, can they? Correct. And I think the the fact that I'm not an engineer in a very strong engineering firm, you know, the depth of technical expertise in Hatch is incredible and they are so proud of it as they absolutely should be. So to have to prove your value in an environment where engineering is so highly valued you, you've you've got to you've got to understand engineering to a point where you understand how you fit in and how your your effect can either make something more efficient or optimize a process or remind people that just because we've been doing it that way for 25 years doesn't make it the right way to do it. So you know, but without sounding like you're placing blame, because very rarely is it a blame is it a blame game. Yeah. Yeah, sure. And you mentioned needing sponsors or mentors through your career. Who have been um, some of your great mentors that you've worked with? Yeah, look, I think one of the, one of the big leaders that I just looked up to as soon as I started at John Holland is, is Rob Menachie. And so he's just, he was general manager of New South Wales. And then he moved into Giorgio and he was a CEO of Giorgio. And he's just moved into the, onto the board of Giorgio and step, stepped to the side so that one of the, one of the up and coming executives can take the CEO role. And his his commitment to his people was incredible. And it's one thing that I learned is just, you know, passion for what you do and passion for your people. People want to be people want to work for you. And the other thing he said to me is when he admitted when I got a I got a the regional environment position, he said, you weren't my first choice, Christy. He just said you weren't. But he said you came into that interview and you just set out what I needed to hear, which is you don't know what you don't necessarily know a b or c but this is what you're going to do to learn it and this is what you're going to do to help me get my team to where it needs to be so when i started in that role there was i think there was only one other environment person in the team and when i left you know and it's still going strong there's still the you know, few of the team that we had cuz you were on the team too <laughs> a few of that team are still there and and it 
I think it grew to, to 10 or 11 people by the time I moved on to a different role. So, you know, the value was definitely seen there. So in that situation, it was a, your problem solving approach that, that really won Rob over. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and he just, he like, I think he saw sparks in people. He saw passion and I've got lots of it and he has lots of it himself. And I think that was, but he also knows he really likes to be, he likes an honest approach. You know, if, if something's not real or not right, he doesn't mind being sort of told that he might fight back. But the other thing I really liked about, about him is you could go into a room as a team and you could just absolutely just tear shreds out of a solution. But when you left that room, you knew he had your back. So, you know, you could you could disagree the entire time. But if you landed on a solution by the end of that meeting, when you left, you knew you knew that he was going to advocate for that solution. So there's a lot of trust there. Hmm. And in terms of sponsors, so I, I moved from sort of working with Robin Acci, I moved to Chris Evans in John Holland as well. And he's the one that brought me actually to Sydney Airport. So him and I just always had a great working relationship. We have a, a, a really big, there's a depth of trust there too. I really respect his integrity and, and the way that he approaches decisions. He's just, you know, there's a lot of really just mutual respect there. And so, you know, we, he's working in New Zealand now for, for a different company, but I grew, I grew quite significantly with the opportunities that he gave me because he trusted my ability to take something new on. I guess that just say is such good advice to to have the courage to go and ask you know for somebody to be your mentor and then to to pursue them in a way to make sure that you know you are getting out of that relationship what what you need because it's not up to them to give you what you need. Yeah. Yeah. So even though you've moved away from a career directly in environmental sciences I'm sure it's still very close to your heart. Do you do anything in your home life to reduce your impact or work towards being more sustainable? Yeah, absolutely. I'm still hoping that the sun stays out because I don't have a dryer and I'm doing an adventure challenge this week with a bunch of girlfriends and I need my clothes to dry before I leave at 2.30. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that's one thing that I do. Um, I I also have some pretty strict supply chain rules. So things, you know, where I shop and buy my clothes and my kids' clothes and, and furniture for the house, I really pay attention to the impact there. There's a lot that I'd like to do, probably more than I do. And sometimes convenience gets in the way, you know, convenience and children and just trying to get through the day and just getting people out the door into different things and places. But but yeah, and no, I'm trying, I, I don't drive to work anymore because I can. So if I have an option for public transport that's effective, I'll, I'll take that every time. So there's, a, there's bits and pieces that I definitely consider. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, it has been really lovely and enlightening to talk to you um, about your, I guess, your career and some of your advice to people up and coming. Thank you again for your time. Thank you. It's been really great to see you again and have a chat. That wraps up this episode of Beyond the Green Line podcast. Thanks very much for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Green Line, brought to you by Moss Environmental. Subscribe to our podcast for your weekly invitation to join the conversation. Until next time, keep thinking green.